Hallelujah to saving grace. We are here because of God's kindness in sending his son Jesus to take care of or to address the greatest issue that man has ever had, and that's the issue of sin, which leads to death. Jesus became a man, the God of all creation came and became flesh, dwelt among us, ministered his word to us, allowed us, or allowed the people of the first century at least, to be able to, to touch and feel and experience the ministry of God himself dwelling among them, hearing the words of life that came from Jesus Christ, seeing the confirming work of the Spirit working through Jesus in performing miracles and testifying that he is, in fact, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among his people. Then Jesus died. He rose again. He, he allowed us, he, the, the song we just sang, our, our, our sin, those at least who believe in Christ as a way of salvation, their sin has been buried with Christ in the grave, and he, through his resurrection, offers spiritual life to those who believe in him. Forgiveness of sin, cleansing. We're working through the, the gospel of Luke, and it's probably fitting that we come to the end of Christ's message today to that crowd there that was gathered initially in Luke chapter 12 and now spilling into Luke chapter 13. And as a result of some of the the penetrating truths that Jesus talks about as it relates to sin and death and judgment and future condemnation, the coming of the king, the coming of this master, the imminent danger that presents itself in terms of those who are living in sin, who will face accountability. And those in the crowd hearing about this message, hearing these truths, begin to wonder, okay, so Jesus... Is that why those who came from Galilee to Jerusalem experienced judgment? Because they didn't settle accounts, because their heart wasn't right. And Jesus wants to, to address and to disentangle, to, to help guide their misunderstanding about their thinking as it relates to hard things and suffering that takes place as being an evidence of something deeper inside. Jesus wants his first century audience and he wants us here in the 21st century to recognize that condemnation and judgment of sin is coming upon every sinner that exists. Not just on those who experience tragedy, but on every person who exists in this day and every day since the Garden of Eden has lived in sin because of the sin nature and because they choose to rebel against God. So Jesus, Jesus is going to address tragedy that's happening or has happened in their midst in trying to help them understand that while tragedy and suffering and hard things happened to some Galileans and to some who were living in Jerusalem, it is just a, a picture of the tragedy, the judgment that's going to come on sin in the last day. You know, we live in an era, an age, in which communication 
across the world is in our face at a touch of a, of a button. We turn on the, on the television, we uh, look on the internet, we, we see real-time video of tragedies that are taking place across the world. Of course, this past week, the, the terrible conflict that's happening in Israel, this conflict between uh, those living in the Gaza Strip and those who are living in Israel, the conflict, the tragedy, the death, the, the suffering that's taking place, uh, regardless of whether you're from Gaza or you're from Israel, that's happening as a, as a consequence of the world in which we live. The world in which we live, which is full of sin. We, we see it as we're watching and looking at images. We, we see families that have been devastated because of a loss of a father or a mother or a child. Uh, suffering the anguish of the, of the loss, regardless of whether you are living in Gaza or whether you're living in Israel, this, this loss, this reality of suffering is in your face. But just to look over the landscape of, of 2023 will help us understand that the, that the tragedy that's taking place this past week in Israel and Gaza is just a foretaste of the tragedy and suffering that's happening around the world. Let me briefly just highlight some of the, the major catastrophes that have taken place. Going back to February, this earthquake that took place in Syria and Turkey, February 6th, the magnitude 7.8 earthquake occurred in southern Turkey and um, near the northern border of Syria. The quake was followed by uh, nine hours later by a magnitude 7.5 earthquake. It was one of the most powerful recorded earthquakes that's ever been recorded in this location. As many as 50,000 people died because of this tragedy. 50,000 people. That's almost incomprehensible. 297 are missing. Over 100,000 that were injured across 11 of the 17 affected provinces of Turkey. At least 15.7 million people and 4.7 million buildings were affected by this tragedy that took place there. And the tragedy that's taken place across Africa for the last five years, rainfall that has been either less than expected or has not occurred at all, the economic shock and the weather extremes have, have also been exacerbated by the, the growing, the rise of the population in places like Somalia, in Kenya, in Ethiopia, in South Sudan. This situation that is so bad that it's reported in parts of Ethiopia in particular that people, women and their kids are walking for 10 hours just to get water. 10 hours, that's incomprehensible to walk just to get water. I, I don't even know whether or not to believe the, the statistic that is there. In China, this next slide, floods that took place in China in July this summer, unprecedented flooding across China as monsoon season and typhoons and rainfall have, has battered the country. At least 16 cities and provinces in northeastern China experienced the record rainfall so that they received 60% of what a typical year's worth of rainfall would be they experienced in 83 hours. The rainfall was so devastating and uh, 
It backed up the, the dams that were in China so greatly that two of the dams in China broke, which added to the catastrophe. Of course, the fires in Canada that many of you, us have, have experienced uh, secondhand as we're kind of breathing in the, the smoke that's been wafting down from Canada. It's said that the fires that have taken place this summer in Canada are 10 times more than what took place in 2022. 37.8 million acres of forest have been burned the size of New York State. Flooding that took place in Libya in September. Mediterranean storm Daniel passed through uh, Libya on September 9th and it dropped eight months of rain in, in just a short period of time. 100,000 people and 25% of the city was, was taken out in just, uh, in just this this one event. Earthquakes that happened in Morocco. We could talk about the hurricane season in Florida, how devastating that, is, that has been. The fires that took place in Hawaii. The ongoing conflict with Russia and Ukraine. The devastating reality of all of these things help us to recognize that suffering is imminent. Suffering is a part of the course of the life that we live from day to day. It is affecting the world around us. And to these Jewish people who were gathered at this point in, in Jesus' ministry, Jesus will begin to explain to them the things that have happened, these calamities, were not a direct judgment of God on the sin of wicked individuals. Their theology was wrong. We'll talk about this more as we move through our time together. In, in their theology, the consequences or the suffering that took place was directly a result of sin in their life. And so it was just coming out into the open as God was judging their sin. And so if we haven't experienced suffering, this was their rationale, if we haven't experienced suffering, then obviously we're good with God. And Jesus wants to correct that misguided thinking as he concludes his message here in Luke chapter 13. This summary of the message that began at the beginning of Luke chapter 12, he's drawing to a close in his desire for the people who were standing there in that day was the same as his desire has been all the way through his ministry. But especially in his ministry as he's been moving his way from town to town, village to village, here in the area surrounding Jerusalem in the region known as Judea. Just as a quick sketch of where we've been from Luke chapter 10, I, I want you to see these, these patterns, these rhythms of teaching, the themes of, of Christ's teaching from Luke chapter 10 moving into Luke chapter 13 so we can understand that what Jesus is helping his readers or his listeners to know is that there is a standard, there is a desire for God to make the truth known it will be reflected in the heart of repentance in his people and the fruit of faith that will play out. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 72. The 72 who are, who are supposed to go out and preach about this kingdom of God. He tells them to heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And as a result of this evident uh, and, and accessible ministry of the, of the teaching of the kingdom of God, Jesus warns the cities in Galilee. 
He says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. 72 return from their ministry. They're excited about how God used them, how they were able to cast out demons through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, while he is rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, wants to direct their attention to understand. It's not about the things that happen here that matters. It's about the fact that your names are written in the kingdom of heaven. You belong to that kingdom. You are revealing that you're true children of God. And then Jesus talks about this word, this word of God that, that, that illuminates hearts. He says that you, you've revealed God, you've revealed your truth, not to the intellectual, not to the religiously astute, but to children. You've revealed your truth to children, and, and it plays out, it bears fruit in those who love the Lord their God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love their neighbor as themselves. There is a fruit of faith that, that produces a harvest of love for God and spills out in love for others. This will be the resounding theme as we continue to move our way now into Luke chapter 11, the very beginning as Jesus stands front and center as the, as the preeminent disciple, as the, as the pre- preeminent leader and the, the picture of, 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 of God on the earth, his standard. Jesus at the very beginning of Luke chapter 12, or 11, excuse me, says, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. This was first and foremost on Jesus' mind. And he tells this parable about this man who has a, a guest come, and, and the, the point of this parable was to help his audience understand that those who are disciples of Christ, those who follow Jesus as the leader, have the benefit of praying to the Father and having their needs met. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. And Jesus heals a mute and a blind individual who is bound by the Holy Spirit, or excuse me, bound by Satan. He casts out the demon, and then he says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. You must choose your leader. You must be a disciple who follows after me. And blessed are those, he says, Jesus says, who hears the word of God and keeps it. Your posture your attitude to the word of God in leading you to follow me, in leading you to a fruit of faith will be a signal to the world that you truly love and obey the word. Jesus will speak of the evidence of the word of God bearing fruit in the hearts of the Ninevites. He said, men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment and condemn this generation because they repented and you did not. Again, this theme of repentance, of coming face-to-face to face with the truth, of bowing your knee to the truth that you hear and turning your heart to God and following after him. This fruit of repentance, this fruit of faith. Then in the middle of Luke, in Luke 11, the second half, Jesus is invited to dinner to, with the Pharisees and he addresses these very issues in their life. He addresses the, the fruitlessness, the, the insincerity, the inauthenticity, the hypocrisy of their heart. On the outside, they're like a washed, 
cup, but on the inside, they're full of greed. They're full of wickedness. You cleanse the outside of the cup, Jesus says, but you are full of greed and wickedness. You tie the mint, but neglect justice in the love of God. You love the best seats in the synagogue. You are like unmarked graves, Jesus says, and people walk over you without even knowing. You are spiritually dead. They thought they had positioned themselves in a way that they were gonna, they were gonna bear the blessing of this old covenant standard of, of, of being those who followed after the law and thus enjoying the favor of God in their life. But, but deep down inside, they were, just, they were just washed cups, but the inside was full of greed. The true person was opposed to God. Then he turns his attention to the scribes, to the lawyers, and he says, you build the tombs of the prophets, but you consent to the deeds of your fathers. The blood of the prophets will be charged to this generation. You burden people with things too hard to bear. You know the word of God, but you don't even lift a finger to touch it yourself. You disregard the scripture. You disregard spiritual life. You refuse to bow your knee in repentance to the truth that you hear. You demonstrate that you are true, truly just hypocrites in nature. So now in turning to Luke chapter 12, the, the crowd that has gathered in responding probably to the the, the Pharisees who are present and are, who are trying to antagonize Jesus in his steps, Jesus takes the opportunity to call them out in public and at the very beginning says, beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Don't be intimidated by them. Don't be afraid of their threats. When they bring you to the synagogues, before the synagogue, don't worry because the Holy Spirit will teach you what to say. Don't follow their greed and idolatry. Rather, put your trust in God. Understand the significance of kingdom life. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Trust in your good and kind father to provide. Don't be anxious about the things here in the here and now. Don't be anxious about your life, the things you're gonna wear, the things you're gonna eat or drink, the things you're gonna put on because God cares about those things. You demonstrate through the fruit of your faith, the fruit of your life, there's a confidence in a God who is able to provide and you are on mission to make sure that your life is pursuing kingdom pursuits, kingdom objectives and trusting in laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. Jesus wants to help them understand the imminence of this kingdom that is, that is ready to come. And be like a servant, he says, who is faithful, like who carries out the tasks in anticipation of the master's return. I have come to usher judgment, Jesus will say. I've come to bring fire on the earth, and I'm gonna be baptized with a baptism that comes from God himself, this wrath of God, this judgment against sin that he's gonna carry on the cross, and this will be the guarantee of future judgment for all who, who continue in sin. Because of this, be aware of the times. Understand. You can understand and discern the weather patterns. You, you know when the wind is blowing from the west, there's going to be rain. When it's blowing from the south, it's going to be dry and hot. How is it that you can understand the simple things like weather, but you can't understand the, the more obvious things like the coming of the Messiah, the things that you have prepared your heart, the, the things that, that you have, have anticipated from time past? How is it that you're missing your Messiah standing right in front of you? 
So Jesus will wrap this up in Luke chapter 13, and he'll add two more elements in this sermon. He wants them to understand. He'll come back to some of the same themes he's addressed over and over since Luke chapter 10. Understand the need for repentance and understand the expectation of bearing fruit. It is with that that we begin to look for ourselves in Luke chapter 13. We recognize that Christ's warning here for his audience is that they repent. You must repent. That is the first and foremost posture of a true disciple. They come to a place of repentance. We'll talk about that some more as we move through this passage. In verse 1 it says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Of those, or those 18, on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Again, the question in the minds of those who were present is, if judgment is coming, if the master is coming, and that we, we need to discern the times, and we need to settle accounts, then who are those people that need to settle accounts the most? Who are the most guilty? Who, who are those who stand uh, in, the, in the place of the, of the worst possible judgment? And so they're, they're, they're thinking about this situation, and in their first century mind, uh, beginning to, to make a correlation between tragedies that happen, outcomes that happen, as being a fruit of a heart or a fruit of a life. And Jesus wants to correct that as he addresses both of these stories the first question that's given to him about the Galileans and then the, the next story that, that Jesus offers himself. In, in both of these accounts, he wants them to understand that everyone is a sinner. Christ's warning to repent comes because everyone is a sinner. Everyone stands in a place of deficiency and rebellion against a holy God. Everyone is a sinner. Notice how Jesus gets there. Jesus poses this question, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than the other Galileans? Meaning, do you think that they were any worse of a sinner than the rest of the, all those Galileans that, that, that live in Galilee? Meaning, everybody who lives in Galilee is guilty of sin, not just the ones who experienced this, this tragedy in their life? And let's bring this a little closer to home. I know you don't have the, the best feelings towards Galileans. I, I know that, that in your mind that you think you're, you're better than the Galileans. Those Galilee, those people who live in the Galilee of the Gentiles, they're mixed, they're somewhat polluted, they're, they're somewhat uh, tainted by, by the Gentile influence. Well, let's bring this home and talk about those who live and grew up in Jerusalem. I want you to understand that those 18 that died at the hand of this tower that fell, they weren't any worse than the other sinners who also live in Jerusalem, meaning the, you guys who I'm talking to, who are in my midst and hearing this message, I, I want you to know you're no better off than they were. We recognize from Jesus' life and ministry that Jesus wanted to help his listeners recognize 
the danger of sin in how sin permeates every individual that's ever walked the planet from Adam. And Jesus will, will ask this question, he'll pose this question, do you think they were worse offenders or worse sinners? And he provides to both questions an emphatic no. This word no is put all the way at the beginning to help them recognize that things were faulty in their thinking. This word We've addressed this already, but I just want to draw attention to it again. It says, there were some present at this very time. This is the, the Greek word now, or at this very time. And, and while there's a chapter break in chapter 13, it really is a continuation of a message that Jesus has started since Luke chapter 12. The NASB says this, now on the same occasion. That's helpful, and probably a little closer to the original. It helps us to recognize that what was on their mind was this imminent presence of judgment that they could expect, the, the need for them to settle, settle accounts. The sign of the times was here, this lack of peace and division that Jesus had just referenced back in Luke chapter 12. This conflict of kingdoms is what's brewing in their minds as they're thinking about, well, Pilate, he's from an earthly kingdom, and here are some Jews from Galilee, and Jesus introduces a, a, a group from, from Jerusalem, and they're, they're supposed to be in, in this heavenly kingdom, but they're still experiencing this tragedy. How, how is this possible? Of course, the specifics of the situation, not only with the Tower of Siloam, but also with the blood that Pilate spilled, is indicative or helps, is a very familiar, would have been familiar to the people living in that day as kind of a standard mode of, opera, opera, of operation for Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the fifth Roman governor of Judea. He had been appointed by Tiberius in AD 26, remained in office for 10 years and was removed in A.D. 36. Pilate was proud. He was arrogant. He was cynical. And at the same time, weak and vacillating. One such instance uh, happened while Pilate, his rule as, as governor, was, was beginning. And, and um, as he rode into Jerusalem, he made this grand entrance of, of marching his troops into Jerusalem, carrying a standard that bore the image that the Jews viewed as idolatrous. The population of Jerusalem protested against what they thought was sacrilege, and Pilate ignored their, their protests and, and actually ordered that those who continued protesting would experience the pain of death. But they called this bluff, and they dared him to carry out his threat of execution. And Pilate was, was wise enough to know that he couldn't massacre these people without getting away with it. So he, he was unwilling to massacre them. He was forced to remove the offending standards. And it continued to show his, his pride and arrogance, but also that he was one who vacillated from his original plans. Pilate again enraged the Jews by taking money from the temple treasury so that he could build an aqueduct, aqueduct to bring water into Jerusalem. The ensuing protest riots, the soldiers would beat and slaughter many of those who protested at that particular time. And while the specifics of this incident aren't, re aren't recorded in, in history, 
Josephus, who was a historian for Rome during that time, didn't record this specific incident. It would have happened in Jerusalem because that was the only place where sacrifices were to occur. It would likely have happened during Passover because this is when a mass gathering or mass pilgrimage of those coming from Galilee would have found themselves in Jerusalem and likely to have happened also in, uh, during Passover because it was the only time where animals were actually killed by the family and not by the priest. This was a, a way to kind of bring the atonement, the blood of the lamb painted on doorposts. It kind of brought that picture home. This was the only time in which those who were, who were non-priests would have been part of killing the animal. So Jesus takes this moment to untangle their misguided doctrine. He wants to help them understand that the things that they'd always believed up to this point about cause and effect, about the heart leading to judgment of God in very public ways was misguided. Of course, this misunderstanding goes all the way back to Job in Job chapter 4, verses 7 to 9. This is the first time that Job is addressed by one of his friends, Eliphaz, who says this, Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where, or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his anger they are consumed. This was the prevailing thought. Those who experience pain and suffering and judgment at the hand of God have been those who have planted that same suffering and wickedness and rebellion against God. And while God does allow suffering to happen in this world, we recognize that God often uses suffering, especially as in the case of Job, to help refine his people, to help lead them to better things, to help them understand they can trust in God. Just think about Joseph. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his son Joseph, and the experience that he had of being sold into slavery. Uh, the, the challenges that he experienced, the, the heartache and the suffering of, of being sold out by his brothers and, and, and being a captive, a slave in Egypt, and how God used that providentially to rescue his people and to mark out a man who trusted in God as the example of those who would also follow in the steps of faith of Abraham and Joseph by trusting God in the midst of hard things, trusting in the sovereignty of God. Daniel would be another example of one who was sold into slavery but rose to a power um, within the Babylonian and Persian Empire to be used by God in significant ways. Jesus wants to help his, his audience understand that the effect, the consequences that some may experience does not set them apart as those who are especially worthy of judgment, but as a picture, is meant to be a picture of judgment that, that will come on the life of all who live because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The result of sin leads to judgment. And that's where we go next. Not only has everyone sinned, but everyone deserves to perish. Everyone deserves the judgment of God. Everyone deserves condemnation. 
Jesus brings this other example, this example of those in Jerusalem uh, on, on which the Tower of Siloam fell. It was easy for the people of Jerusalem in Judea to kind of think, well, you know, those Galileans, they're kind of, they're kind of wicked kind of people. Of course, they, they deserved what they got. But Jesus brings this home by giving them an example of those who are actually living there in Judea, living in and around Jerusalem, of this tragedy that took place to them. This uh, area of Siloam, this, this pool of Siloam, is in a section of Jerusalem near the southeastern corner of the city. You can see this picture here. It's the, it's the area that is circled. And uh, recent excavations ha- are, are, are uncovering more and more of this pool. There's a, a set of steps that lead up to the Temple Mount. It's about 2,000 feet up to the temple. It's an elevation of about 375 feet from the, from the pool of Siloam up to the temple. And what would happen is pilgrims would come or those in Jerusalem would come and this was, this was the place where sanctifying, uh, sanctification would happen. This, this water rituals, this, this, this uh, trying to set yourself apart and, and preparing yourself for the sacrifice would happen. It's interesting that in both examples, the one of the Galileans and the one of those living in Jerusalem, Jesus uses religious people as his example to help those who are listening, those who were in the company of this sermon, to recognize that everyone is worthy of judgment. Everyone will perish. We're not talking about the blatantly rebellious here. Jesus makes an example of the religious, the religious Jew. He's called out the Pharisees. He's called them out for their hypocrisy. He wants those who have even been following him along for a period of time, who who would call themselves fringe disciples or or maybe even close associates of Jesus, he wants them to understand that however much you follow along, if there is not a true posture of your heart for repentance and faith in God, there will be judgment. There will be condemnation. You will perish. While this crowd may have thought, well... We're following all of the religious rules. We're we're working through all of the standards that have been set up by the law. Certainly we should experience the favor of God. But Jesus wants them to understand, don't think you're any better. Unless you repent, you will also perish. See that as the future for yourself. Because of the plight that we have in Adam. Paul will say in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, in death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Because of Adam's sin, we all inherit a sin nature, and thus we're all conditioned to sin in life. We act in rebellion against God. I appreciate how Child Evangelism Fellowship defines sin. Sin is anything you think, say, or do that breaks God's law and makes him sad. Jesus wants his audience to understand it's not just about the externals. As a matter of fact, it has more to do with what's going on on the inside. That's why he confronts the Pharisees. You know, the outside of your cup, it looks so clean, it looks so pure, but just look on the inside and you'll see the real person deep down inside, full of greed and full of wickedness. 
And on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus confronts the same kind of heart. You have heard it said, and you can fill in the blank with any number of things. You've heard it said, uh, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, and Jesus helps to elevate the true standard of the law by driving into the heart. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. Jesus is driving it home. It doesn't matter what happens on the outside. What you are stewing on and what you're thinking about and meditating on, that's where sin begins. As James will say later, he says, he says, um, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor, that, nor does he tempt any man, but every man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. It is your own desires, your own hard posture that drives you away from God. Address the sin issue there. That's where it begins. And Jesus wants everyone in this crowd to understand they're, they're on, they're on uh, level ground as it relates to condemnation and worthiness of judgment against God. But there is a solution. And that's where Jesus also introduces, unless you repent, you will also perish. There is a solution, and that comes in repentance. Christ's invitation for them to repent. What is repentance, after all? What are we talking about when we talk about repentance? This is a, the Greek word metanoia. It's a change of mind, which we results in a change of life. It, it's what we were just talking about, how, how, how Christ is driving to the center. He's driving to the core. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. The, the things that are really going on down inside, they, they are, they're going to eventually come out in one way or the other. So you need to address the posture of your heart, the, the things you truly believe, because that's what's going to show up on the outside, the way you live. And repentance isn't just saying, I'm sorry. It's not just expressing regret for an action. True repentance must come to terms with these four truths. First, God is holy. If you're going to repent, you need to come to terms with the truth that God is holy. That he is perfect, he is pure, he is righteous, his standard is the overarching standard of life for every person that lives. It's a, a call not just to live a good life, it's a representation of the perfect life, the life of God. So as you look at God in the law and through the law, you're seeing a reflection of his character in that law. Those rules and standards that we have captured for us in the commandments from Genesis working all the way through Deuteronomy is a reflection of the character and perfection of God himself. You must come to terms with the fact that God is holy. Second, you must understand that you are a sinner. And not just a casual sinner. That sin has affected you at the deepest level. It's, it's affected you at every level of your life. It affects the way you think, the way you talk, the way you act. It affects your motives. It affects your personal selfishness. It affects your pride. Every part of life is affected by sin. It's, it's uh, tainted and corrupted by sin. Third, you must come to a place of recognizing that because you are a sinner, because I am a sinner, we deserve God's judgment. We deserve God's discipline. 
We deserve the wrath of God that comes upon mankind because of their wickedness and rebellion against him. Fourth, the fourth truth is that Jesus made a way to salvation and forgiveness through Jesus Christ himself, that he is the only means of forgiveness and salvation, that coming to a place of recognizing that it was Jesus' death on the cross, his payment for sin, his resurrection, life that gives us the right, the privilege of enjoying a relationship with God, forgiveness and cleansing, freedom from shame. God gives his righteousness to us in exchange for faith in him. We turn away from sin, we turn to God, that's repentance. And it leads to a life of self-evaluation. It leads to a life of self-reflection, coming to a place where Paul will say repeatedly, walk worthy of the gospel. Walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Not the kind of life that is looking at others. Well, I'm glad I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Or I I wonder what they did to deserve that punishment. It's not even the the kind of life that would say, well, I I wonder what what I do to deserve this. But it's recognizing that any of the tragedy that happens around us, whether it's a, it's a tower that falls on people in Jerusalem or whether it's a diagnosis of cancer or some very painful thing that whatever God allows to introduce into your life, it's not meant to judge you per se, but to lead you to faith in him. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, everything that God introduces into our life is meant to lead us into faith to him, to trust him, that he's better, to trust him, that he's able to help and strengthen us, whatever tragedy might come your way. Finally, we find Christ's expectation of fruit. Christ's expectation of fruit. There's a demand and a warning for repentance, this invitation. Would you come and repent? Would you come to acknowledge your sin? But, but when you do, this is what you can expect. This, this is what needs to be true of your life. There, there must be fruit. He tells this parable to bring this out into the open. He says, he told them a parable in verse 6. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. He came seeking fruit on it. He found none. He said to the, to the vine dresser, look, For three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on um, manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. We see a couple things just to wrap up our time this morning. First, we find that true disciples will show the fruit of faith. True disciples will show the fruit of faith. It is what Jesus has been talking about since the beginning of his ministry, but especially from Luke chapter 10, now spilling into Luke chapter 13. Those who are true and authentic followers of God will demonstrate in their life they believe in him, and that will show up in a certain way. They will bear fruit. This parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 8 of the soils, 
this seed that has been cast, this word that has been cast on the, on the hearts of people and, and, and depending upon how they respond to that word, e- even if it shows initial life, what seems an initial promise, if there, if there is no fruit at the end of the day, it demonstrates it doesn't truly belong to God. It's not a true disciple of God. Fig trees were used frequently in Israel. They were very prevalent there. They, they would often enjoy this, this picture of health in this, uh, in this place and grow to heights of about 25 feet. Fig trees would have two crops annually, one around May and June and the other around August and October. They were reliable. They were dependable. You could expect that, that a healthy fig tree was going to bear fruit. This fig tree was often pictured throughout the Old Testament as, a, as kind of a symbol for Israel. How, how God himself had planted Israel, how God himself had initiated life, this relationship with Israel. And, of course, he expected this response of Israel in believing in him and demonstrating that in certain ways. And here Jesus had come. He had ministered to them. He had shared the truth with them. He had, he had demonstrated that he was from God. He had been validated by the miracles that he performed. He was validated by the work of the Holy Spirit in him. Who could speak like such a man? They were astonished and marveled at his teaching. He spoke with authority because he was from God himself. But of course, as Jesus was looking across the landscape of these individuals, not only those in Galilee, but also those near Jerusalem, he knew that in just a few months, the inevitable was going to happen. He was going to make his way to Jerusalem. They were going to reject him. He was going to be turned over to the Roman authorities. He was going to be crucified and killed. He's going to be tortured on the cross. He knew it was coming, and he speaks to this crowd of individuals who were likely going to be there in some respects on that day or during that Passion Week, continuing to hear and experience his ministry, and yet eventually or ultimately turning their back from the truth that he would teach. They would not show this fruit of faith. So they had to expect. They had to expect judgment because a lack of fruit also leads to judgment. And while Jesus is patient and God has has been merciful and gracious, and this is the testimony of God written across even the Old Testament, as God is showing up to Moses, he says, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. That's our God. But, but it continues to talk about how he, while he is, he is patient for a time, eventually his patience will run out. Eventually judgment will come. So we're living essentially on borrowed time, as it were, because the imminence of Christ's return is coming. The certainty of judgment and condemnation is coming. And so the question for us is the same as the question for those who are listening during the first century. Is what will you do in response to the truth of the message of the need for repentance that Jesus is giving to the people there in the first century and it echoes through the ages to our present day? I was just recounting the privileges that have been afforded to us here in America. I was just recounting in my mind the benefits of living in this, in this country. The access that we have to the word of God, 
I was reading a statistic this week that, that Americans buy 25% of all of the Bibles that are produced annually. A, a population of 330 million that live here as compared with 7.5 billion people, and yet the, the, the concentration of the Word of God in America is so prevalent. And yet, how many of our hearts are set against that truth? And the saturation of the, of the churches that are across this country and, and have been across this country since, since its inception going back to the first great awakening that happened in 1730. Even before our country became a nation, the first great awakening, which led into the second great awakening, which led into the third great awakening, which takes us to 1885. And this businessmen's revival that, that happened in the, the mid-1800s, the Azusa Street revival that happened in the early 1900s leading to 1915, and then 20th century from 1910 to 1970 that was punctuated by the ministry of Billy Graham and the ministry of Billy Sunday, whose effective communication of the gospel of Christ to the masses was given on a regular basis. We stand as a nation blessed by the word of God, the presence of the truth, and yet here we are. How will we respond to this truth in bowing our heart to King Jesus? Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, every one of us in this room needs to have a regular pattern of repentance coming to the place of understanding our unworthiness, bowing the knee in a posture of worship and devotion to God himself, aligning our hearts to God's purposes in his mission for us and moving out with that mission into the world that he's called us. How many of us believe that tomorrow's agenda, this week's agenda is our agenda. It's up to us. And in a sense, there are rhythms that we need to go through. There are responsibilities that we have. But is our mission, is our agenda driven by the mission of God or is it just driven by our own personal interests? May God help us as we come to this text to understand that the repentance that Jesus is offering to the first century is a repentance that God is offering to everyone who's in this room on a regular basis. That as Isaiah will say in Isaiah 40, or 30 verse 15, he says, thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in repentance, in rest is your salvation, in quietness, in trust is your strength. Connect your heart to the strength of God. Posture your heart in recognizing your condition before him, your need to a holy God of bowing before him in worship and carrying out the mission he sent you on. Oh God, I pray that you'd help us. Help us to be kingdom-minded. It is so easy to be preoccupied with the kingdom here and now and not to be preoccupied or driven by the kingdom that is coming, the heavenly, eternal, glorious kingdom of God. 
Thank you that you've called us to be your, your representatives. May our heart show the fruit of faith and aligning to your objectives for us day by day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you.